Hey dog people of the internet, welcome to Cog Dog Radio, a podcast all about dog sports, behavior, and training. I'm your host, Sarah Stremming of the Cognitive Canine, and I can't wait to share my behavior cases, training revelations, and general geekery with you. Let's get started. Okay, I've got another Venn diagram episode for everybody. This one is about values. Um, I recently chatted in the Cog Dog Club, which is my little monthly live Zoom chat with my Patreon members about values in training. And I thought it would make a great episode. I thought that so many amazing things came up in that conversation that I just had to share it with the rest of you. So first, of course, we need to start by defining values. Values are principles and standards of behavior. And I think in dog training, we we might talk about ethics. And I think of that as being kind of different. I think of ethics as being a little bit um, centered on kind of what is right and what is wrong. Whereas for me, values is just about, you know, what are the principles that I will abide by? What are the standards for my behavior as a trainer? The Venn diagram is essentially, you know, on one side, I've got my values when I'm training my own personal pets, and I've got on the other side, the values that I hold as a professional. And there's a whole lot of stuff that meets in the middle here in in between these two circles. So the two circles are almost just one circle, (laughs) but I'm going to kind of go down the list talk about why something is maybe more important to me as a pet owner or more important to me as a professional. And what I love is for everybody else to leave me a comment on Facebook or come join us in Patreon and join this conversation as well. So my values, I'm just going to kind of go down the list of them and I'll tell you where they fall, which side they fall or if they fall in the middle. The first one, which is a big one for me, is efficacy. So essentially, are the training actions I am choosing effective? Are they working for the situation that I'm currently in? Um, Efficacy is at the top of my list as a professional. It is so, so important to me that the protocols and procedures that I give people work for them. I think that this isn't considered high enough on the list for dog training professionals in general. I think we all need to hold this as a really important value for us. It's important to me as a pet owner too that I'm effective because I think that our learners are always owed an effective process but it is less important to me with my own dogs. And the reason is if it's my own dog and I try something and it doesn't work, I can fix it. Or if I screw it up, I just, I'll just fix it, right? It's different for me than when I'm working with a client and their dog and they've only got so much money and time to spend with me. And I want to get them through the process and to their results in the most efficient way possible. And so efficacy is more important to me as a professional than as a pet owner. The next is that I follow the humane hierarchy of interventions for the most part. 
So the humane hierarchy of interventions is essentially just a guideline um, put out there by Dr. Susan Friedman, and I'll put a link um, to a visual for it in the notes for you all. But essentially, it is the kind of guidelines for what we do and when we do it. It starts with wellness. Surprise, surprise. We need to start with making sure the animal is well cared for and healthy. And then it goes up to antecedent arrangements. So that's essentially management. So you first make sure the dog is well, and then you find out if you can manage the environment in such a way that the problematic behaviors are no longer being expressed. Then it goes up to positive reinforcement. Can I apply positive reinforcement in such a way that it reduces um, the problematic or unwanted behavior? Then it goes up to differential reinforcement of alternatives, meaning um, can I apply positive reinforcement for only my alternative behaviors and cut off reinforcement for the problematic or unwanted behaviors? And the difference between those two steps is a little bit subtle. But that higher step, that later step does involve cutting off that reinforcement for the previous behavior, which can result in some extinction. Then, you know, if you've exhausted those things, then we can move into extinction or negative punishment and then all the way up to positive punishment if, if you get there. For me, I think, um, oh, and I'm sorry, negative reinforcement was lumped in there with, uh, with extinction, then uh, with extinction and negative punishment, then positive punishment. I have a little bit of a bone to pick with um, associating with, with negative reinforcement being lumped with negative punishment and extinction. I think that there are not only humane, but kind ways to apply negative reinforcement. So that's kind of my bone to pick with the hierarchy. But in general, I am following the hierarchy and that is a value. I hold that as important for my dogs and my client dogs. Um, I don't really see a huge difference there. That, that's going to be important for me in both cases. A value for me as a person, as a pet owner, a professional, and a human being is that I believe that everyone on earth deserves to live in an environment that is rich with positive reinforcement. So I'm going to reach early and often for positive reinforcement as my big hammer with pet owners, with my own dogs, with the pet owners that I work with, and with the clients and the people that I work with. So I'm big on everybody deserving to live in a positive reinforcement rich environment has a big, big ethic for me. And I include myself in there too. If I'm not experiencing positive reinforcement in a training class, in a sport, in a training program, then it's not working because this is a value that I need to uphold. Another one that comes in for me across the board with my own dogs, with my client dogs, is respecting kind of who the dog is. So respecting the dog's dogness and not denying them their dogness is a core value and has been for me in my training for a really long time and you could even extend that to include you know breed specific stuff you could extend it to say you know my Icelandic sheepdog is prone to barking and for me to attempt to control that too much goes against my values of kind of allowing her to be who she is my border collies are 
working addicts. They want to do stuff all the time. They want to be training all the time. And they also have pretty high exercise needs. And for me to try and change any of that feels going against who they are. When it comes to my clients' dogs, that often expresses itself in me explaining to them a little bit about maybe who their dog is or why they might be expressing certain behaviors. But this is a higher value for me on my list as a pet owner than as a professional. And the reason is that my first job as a professional is efficacy. My first job as a professional is to find the place that this person and this dog can be harmonious together. And sometimes that does mean that the dog doesn't get to dig in the rose garden, even though it's a terrier and digging is a part of who he is. But what it'll look like is we provide the dog an area to dig rather than trying to punish out the digging. But again, saying, no, you don't get to dig here is a little bit like saying, no, Rhea, you don't get to bark during these certain things that we're doing. And with my personal dogs, it's okay for me to say, you know, she barks. If she's going to bark during heel work, then we're probably not going to compete in obedience. And that's fine with me. Whereas if it's my client saying, I want to do competitive obedience with my Icelandic sheepdog and I need you to help me to minimize the barking, I'm going to try to help them to minimize the barking. So that's where that's a value that's a little bit higher for me as a pet owner than, um, than it is for me as a professional. Here's another one that exists across the board, pet owner, professional, human being, having a growth mindset, looking at things that aren't going exactly the way that I intended with the attitude of how can I learn and grow from this? Having a growth mindset is frustrating sometimes, <laughs> but and sometimes hard to access depending on what's going on, but it's a core value for me. As a professional, what that means is that I look at what I can learn and how I can grow from every single client interaction. And if something doesn't go exactly how I'd like it to go with the client, I'm again, looking at it from a growth mindset perspective. With my personal dogs, um, I'm a little bit tired of being in a growth mindset, which is why I got Rhea and she's wonderful and has really not pushed me too far into a growth mindset yet. So knock on wood on that front. But um, I've really been pushed there and I it would be easy for me to look at my dog's behavior problems that I have tackled as defeats and as things that I screwed up. But instead, I look at it as opportunities for me to be better and to grow. So I hold that really across the board, probably more so as a, as an individual with my own pets than with, with my clients, because generally speaking with my clients, uh, I should know what I'm doing. <laughs> and so um, that's where the next one comes in. This is a really big value for me as a professional and probably less so as an individual, which is that I ask for help. As a professional, if I see myself not being effective, I'm going to ask a colleague for help. If I see myself not having the results I had expected, I'm going to ask a colleague for help. If I see myself climbing that hierarchy towards punishment, I'm going to ask for help. And I have a great, great cabinet of other professionals that I can ask. I'm not just asking my neighbor. I am not asking, you know, my buddy, my best friend. I, well, sometimes because she's a really fantastic trainer, but 
essentially asking for help is a, is a value for me as a professional. It's one that I had to learn because some of the uh, people that I worked with that I worked under really early on did not hold that as a value. They thought that you were a failure as a professional if you needed to ask somebody else a question. And um, I'm really, really glad that that's not how I feel anymore. And I have grown a lot as a trainer since I took on the ask for help value as a professional. As a, as a pet owner and as an individual, I find that one really difficult. <laughs> and so it is lower for sure on the list. The next one, which I think is, which I think really goes along with that is something that I hold um, as a professional, which is education. I value education. I think we all need to be learning and growing. And I think we could lump that into growth mindset and asking for help, but I hold education as a value. And I, I am not likely to pay another professional who I don't see constantly seeking education. So this is something that I definitely see. I see people who are at the top of their game, at the top of their field, or even in their mind, they're at the top of their game and they don't seek continuing education. They don't go to conferences. They don't read books. They don't read studies. They don't talk about this stuff. They just stand on their mountain, ask, acting like they built the damn mountain and don't seek more information. And that's not somebody that I'm likely to pay. I am really, really interested in other people who also value education and have a growth mindset. So that's a big one for me as a professional. And then as a pet owner, that's a big one for me as far as who I'm paying to help me. And that goes for anybody that I'm paying to help me with my dogs, whether it's a veterinarian, a trainer, or somebody else. Finally, as a professional, I really value and again, I think I've said this in many different ways, but I'm going to avoid experimentation as a professional, whereas as a pet owner, I, ex I experiment constantly. So that's the, that's the biggest split, the biggest divide, probably the thing on the Venn diagram that is the furthest away from being in the middle is that with my clients, I avoid experimentation. If I'm experimenting and I don't know, I tell the client that that's what's happening. With my own dogs, I am constantly experimenting. It's a big part of how I learn and grow. So with my own pet dogs, I love to go out to the training studio and just ask some questions. Just ask them what they will do if I do this versus this. And do I get the same outcome if I do it this way versus that way? I'm doing it all the time. It's a big part of my training chops is that I'm doing it all the time. And I don't think it's okay for me to do with my paying clients. So that's a value for me as a pet owning trainer, training my own personal dogs is that I am experimenting all the time so that I'm not just staying in my box and training things the way that I've always trained them. But as a professional, I am rarely, if ever experimenting, I will do the experimentation with my own pets. One that is really important to me with my own pets is that my priorities of training go like this. The first and most important stuff I need to be training and dedicating time to is stuff that makes my dog's lives easier in the human world. So I'm always going to focus first on things like recalls, leash walking, getting in the car, putting on a collar and harness, body handling, uh, grooming, husbandry, toenails. I'm always going to be focused on that stuff first and sport stuff later. With my clients, it's my job to help them with the thing they brought to me. 
if I see that there's something they haven't trained that they don't think is a priority that is affecting the thing they brought to me, then we're going to go there. But otherwise, I'm not making the priority list for them. They're making it and then we're going forward. So that's another one that's pretty different between the two. So that's it. That's my Venn diagram. That's my, those are my training values, my values as a trainer, both as a pet owner and dog sport competitor and, and as a professional. And you know that I would love to hear what yours are. So let me have them. All right, and a few Patreon questions for you. The first one comes from Rendina, who writes, I now have a second dog and looking for pointers on where to start with the business of training two dogs. FOMO for dogs seems very real and both feel left out when I'm working with the other one. Unless the non-working dog is locked out of the training space and having some doggy meltdown moments, no one is getting any worthwhile training. And I'm feeling like a bad mom. How do we all move past this reality to happy turn-taking utopia? Well, Randina, it takes a very long time. Um, it is a worthwhile project to me because I want to be able to interchange all of my dogs as I'm training, but it does take a long time. Part of it is maturity. I think they literally can't do it until a certain age, but building the foundations really young is a really good idea. And it's literally just a slog because you need to train them both to be able to station patiently. And that, if they can't do that as individuals, they definitely can't do it together. So if both of them as individuals can't wait on the station while you set up the entire training situation and then release off, go to work and be able to be sent back and wait again while you set something else up, et cetera. Like if you can't do all the things that you will have to do with both dogs present with them as individuals, then that's where you have to begin. And then your next step is to bring them both together and you're doing very, very little work. Like you're releasing one off and you're feeding them both and then you're putting them back and then you're releasing the other one off and it's just, it's splitting. So just like all good training, you're only asking for as much as they can do. And when there's a mistake, you do not cue them to station and then feed them. This is what everybody does. You tell them to get back up and then you give them a cookie. And so then they get off and get back up and get a cookie repeatedly. You need to just put them back and they don't get fed unless they have stayed there for a period of time. I have a lot of information on this in online classes. I think it's in Teenage Tyrants. It's definitely in the whole picture. But essentially it is going to take you a long time. So you need to find a way to train one and not the other and not have that dog have a meltdown in the meantime, which might mean that dog is in the car. It might mean the dog is in, you know, several rooms away with a chewy, like, and always exercise them ahead of time. And best of luck, because it's a hard thing to get through. Next one is from Lindsay, who writes, I have two dogs and currently use the same release word break for both of them in all situations. When we're going through doors or getting out of the car, I'm thinking I should train them to wait for their name instead. Do you find that is generally a good idea for things like doorways, exiting vehicles, etc.? Yes, <laughs> it's definitely important to do. Um, and I just teach it by name. So I just teach the dogs to release by name. I don't say dog's name break. I just say the dog's name. And I teach that by saying a dog's name and feeding them and kind of moving them as I feed them. And then saying the other dog's name and moving them as I feed them and kind of doing that with the dogs in the lineup. And if they move, when I didn't say their name, they don't get anything. If they wait while I say the other dog's name and move them, then I come back and I do them next. 
All right, next one is from Jackie who writes, I'm curious if you can address what I see as two distinct force-free recall schools of thought. One being to never allow a dog enough freedom to make a wrong choice, i.e. prevent rehearsal, don't let dogs off leash until they're perfect, et cetera. Uh, as someone with a very fast dog, the advice to let him trail a long line would require me to be an Olympic sprinter in order to catch it. So I've always found that humorous. This philosophy also suggests that allowing too much uncontrolled freedom causes recall problems versus your method seems to be to allow a saturation of freedom and off-leash time and suggest that a lack of off-leash time is what causes, um, if not recall problems, at least crazy behavior when off-leash. Is that accurate or is it more complicated than that? I'm dreaming of my off-leash hikes, but right now they are long line mushing or, or end with pounding hearts and rapidly disappearing dog who does uh, who does so far come back eventually. Thanks, Jackie. Yes, it's complicated, of course, but I absolutely feel the dogs need to have that off-leash need of theirs satiated in order to be recalled. But here's the thing, that doesn't mean you go on a hike and you let your dog run forever. It means you seek out safe situations in which you will not need your recall at all to get the dog exercised. My cheater button on this is that I always have a bunch of dogs and my trained adults help me with my puppies. My puppies don't run off because they want to stay with the other dogs. And that's my cheater way out of this. But if I were starting from scratch with a new dog, I would be finding places that that dog could really satiate that need in safety so that I didn't have to call them at all while I built my recall behaviors in that environment. And I build, you can go back to the recall episode and find out how, I build my recall behaviors without calling them. I build those behaviors, then I start to put a label on those behaviors like the recall, just like all other good training. If you try to train sit by yelling sit and then expecting them to do it, it's not going to happen for you. You have to produce sit, make sit a highly reinforced behavior, then you put a name on sit, et cetera, et cetera. So recall training is very complicated, but I see the restriction method backfiring a lot of the time, if the dog doesn't have high exercise needs, like let's say I got a four or five-year-old foster dog that didn't have high exercise needs that I could allow to kind of sniff around on an acre or two acres a couple of times a week and that kind of satisfied them, then I wouldn't allow them freedom while I built that recall queue. It is always about finding a balance between giving them enough freedom, but making sure that you're not in a situation where you have to call them and they won't come or in a situation where you're panicking because you don't see them. And then of course, this is another plug for a GPS caller. Good luck. Next one's from Jan who writes, I'm having a bit of trainer's block in that I'm not sure what I want the end behavior to be or what is reasonable to expect. My dog Luna likes to chase critters. Per Embark, her pre predominant breed is a mountain cur, which hunts by chasing critters up trees. My stepdaughter's family has a cat, and when we visit with them, Luna, with Luna, we manage by using a blanket draped baby gate leaning against the entry to try to keep them separate. The problem is that Luna always knows when the cat is on the other side and reacts, or if the cat slips past the gate, Luna will bark and chase. If I can't get Luna to stop this behavior, Luna won't be able to go visit with us. Our second granddaughter is due in February and my stepdaughter doesn't want the ruckus when the new baby arrives. 
I have taught Luna to not react to squirrels while on leash, i.e. to keep a loose leash and not to pull and bark like a fool. So I feel like behavior modification isn't totally out of the question in this situation, despite her genetics. However, I'm not sure what I want the cat behavior to look like or is reasonable. Do I try to get her to station herself when she sees the cat? Mark and reward for relaxed behavior. She won't be on leash inside with the cat. So isn't so it isn't as clear cut as what I have done with the squirrels while on leash. I have a couple of friends with dog savvy cats uh, that I use that I can use for training Luna in a more controlled environment. But if you know anything about cats, it, it is that there is no controlling them. Okay, Jan, you said it yourself already. This is different from the squirrel situation because of your expectations, though, not because of the antecedents. So you're saying it's different because she won't be on leash inside. And I'm saying, why isn't she on leash inside? Okay, so when you walk past squirrels, you can ask her to do something else and reinforce her for doing it every single time. And she can do that. Any dog can do that, regardless of their genetics. I think that's reasonable. Here's what's not reasonable expecting her to be not being trained, not being controlled in any way, and ignore the cat. That's not reasonable, in my opinion. So a leash, a station, high rates of reinforcement. That's what you're going to have to do. Your life with Luna at that house is going to be management and training. Just like if they had a tree in the middle of their home that had squirrels on it, and your daughter-in-law said that your dog was just not going to be allowed to chase those squirrels inside the house, that they live here, and she's not going to be allowed to do it. You would know, okay, then Luna's going to need to stay on leash or be crated if I don't have time to train her. There's no way that I can expect her to just lay down under that tree and let those squirrels go up and down the tree, right? So that's the same situation. The cat is a squirrel to Luna. And it isn't fair for you to expect her to ignore it. It is fair for you to expect her to do other things in its presence for a high rate of reinforcement. But I think that management in some way is going to be required here. And I'd be really big into finding out if Luna can be confined somewhere away from the cat when you can't be training. And then train actively anytime Luna is around the cat. I hope that helps. It's a, it's a tough problem for sure. And uh, last one comes from Nikki who writes, I'm curious about overcoming suspicion in dogs. I'm working with a dog who I believe has been tricked into many things and views nearly all training games with suspicion. I feel like if she could talk, she would say, WTF are you trying to trick me into? Her toy drive is great, but she will quickly leave when the leave with the toy and refuses food. She's clearly brilliant. She's a two-year-old border collie, but has been labeled stubborn and difficult. Trouble areas include just about everything your teenage tyrant's course covers. And then Nikki went on to add a comment that the dog is also quite good at self-enrichment because of a dog door, free choice food, and one acre yard with three other dogs, which is an important piece here. So Nikki, a couple things. Number one, there's a lot of reasons the dogs don't trust training and don't trust training scenarios. I think you're probably right. The dog has been tricked. People do it all the time, especially with the dog you're talking about. If the dog has all those teenage tyrants types of behaviors, what that means is the dog goes outside, doesn't want to come inside, doesn't want to get in the car, doesn't want to come uncalled, like doesn't want to do what you want him to do, essentially, and has probably been tricked with food to get her to do those things repeatedly. And so, of course, she's suspicious. 
you're trying to do the right thing by providing her a lot of freedom, the dog door, the free choice food, et cetera. And that's not a good thing in your situation. Lots of exercise, always a good thing, but having free choice to move in and out and eat food, of course, she's going to continue to think training is suspicious if she's decided training is not a good idea and she has free access to food and outdoors then why would she ever change her mind so i am not a fan of free feeding ever honestly unless unless your veterinarian said that there's a veterinary a medical reason that your dog needs food available to it all the time then food should not be available all the time so you know, obviously there are exceptions, dogs that have been starved and then are put in a shelter environment need to have food access all the time because they're healing, they're coming through something, it was a trauma. Your dog um, should be eating in training scenarios, should be eating, should be eating fixed meals and then in training scenarios. And so if she wants extra food, she gets to have it in training scenarios and she will get her food every single day, but it's a fixed meal. It gets picked up. She also really shouldn't have free access to outside via the dog door, especially if you want her to work with you. So essentially, Nikki, if we did a behavior consult, I could give you a real plan here because this sounds very complicated and I don't know everything. And so I can't give you a real plan, but giving her free access to everything she wants is not actually helping you. And teaching her to trust training is gonna look like really, really lowering your expectations. I would stop trying to feed her from your hand ever. I'd always be feeding her somewhere else on the ground is a good place to begin. And don't expect behaviors from her that you think are actual behaviors, but walking into a room is a behavior. Staying there for two seconds is a behavior. Looking at you is a behavior, okay? Best of luck, Nikki. And that is it for this week. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe and leave me a review. If you'd like to support this podcast, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio. You might even hear me answer your question on the show. For more content like the stuff you heard here, check out my online courses at cog-dog-classroom.teachable.com.